I think when things are going poorly, that's the time to be, you know, more transparent. And, you know, everyone, you know, we invest in early stage companies. As a result of that, a lot of our companies stumble along the way. As an issuer, the point at which you feel like you have no story to tell might just be the exact time to tell your story. Investors need to know management, get a chance to hear about the company's future plans, even if executing those plans are on the come. Doing that early substantially increases the odds of an investment while you deliver and execute. I've heard it all. And none of those things will bother me. In fact, a lot of times they create opportunities for investors like us to get involved. You know, being a public company can be really hard and small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. And over the last 20 plus years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market, the media and other stakeholder groups. We'll demystify these groups so public companies can learn and unlock their true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. As a fast-growing private or publicly traded company, how do you position yourself to the buy side? First, you have to know the university of buyers. Different asset managers have different strategies. Some look for early stage investments. Others want more established companies that have already matured to some degree. Some stick with the investment long-term while others turn it quickly. Beyond that, portfolio managers will have sectors that they specialize in. So it pays to know who the players are, and we brought in one of the best to help us break it down today. Laird Beeger is Vice President and Portfolio Manager with Barron Capital Group. He runs Barron's Discovery Fund, which invests in the early phase of small, high-growth businesses. Laird has 24 years of research experience on Wall Street, so he's seen it all. If there's anyone who knows what it takes for a company to attract capital, it's Laird. Perhaps most importantly, Laird is a fellow Vanderbilt alum, and we sat down to talk about what he looks for when he invests in a company. Let's step into the arena with Laird Beeger. On paper, you look very impressive, man. I got to tell you that. Ah, I try my best, right? But that doesn't help you in the uh, day-to-day world of investing in stocks, as you know. No, quite frankly, neither one of us could get into Vanderbilt today. There's just no possible way. No chance. One interesting fact that you knew I was going to bring up on the podcast is that at Vanderbilt, you were the mascot on the football (laughs) field, the Commodore. All right. Now I have to hope that the podcast doesn't get a ton of listens, right? Because the whole world will know that I was Mr. Commodore, (laughs) Mr. C, as we like to call him. Yeah. So you've been at Barron a really long time. You've been doing this a really long time. You've seen everything through a bunch of different cycles. At Barron now, you manage two funds, right? What are the parameters around the fund, like size-wise or industry-wise, if anything? Like, What kind of companies are you looking for in those funds? Sure. So like the name suggests, we're really trying to discover, quote unquote, companies at an early stage of growth. That typically means we'll start at around 500 million on the low end in market cap. Our sweet spot is kind of in that 500 million to say $2 billion. And we can invest, technically speaking, up to at purchase like 5.7 billion, which is the largest market cap in the in our benchmark, which is the Russell 2000 growth index. But generally speaking, our real core of our investments are kind of a billion to $2 billion 
billion, which means that these companies, for the most part, are off Wall Street's radar, which is exactly what we like. And we're bottom-up investors, and finding these companies before they've been discovered by Wall Street is super important to us. When you talk about discovered by Wall Street, are you talking about a company that might be 10 to 20 billion where Morgan Stanley and Goldman are covering them and a little more developed story or operationally a little bit more developed strategy? Is that kind of what you mean by that? I'll give you a couple of examples because I think it's better to talk example. We were lucky enough to be an investor in a company called Raven Industries, which got bought out today. And the reason I tell you the story isn't to highlight the fact that we happen to own a company that got bought out. It was more because... And you were right. (laughs) In that one, we're wrong a lot too. Uh, But the more interesting part of the story was is that we went out uh, and visited them a few years ago. Now, just to take a step back, what they do is they're in the autonomous agriculture space. So if you think about a farm today, you have uh, you know people on tractors and seeders and tillers and harvesters, et cetera, et cetera. If you think about the farm in the future, it's going to be all autonomous robots around the farm. There's going to be drones. There's going to be sensors. I mean, it's not hard to envision all the technology that we're putting into cars. And in a farm, there's not even people that you're going run over, right? It's You're doing very automated things. It, it seems very obvious, at least to us, that the future in agriculture is both very bright, but also very autonomous. We invested in this company, Raven Industries, and our view after Deere was the second leading player in autonomous ag technology, went out and saw them in South Dakota and spent the whole day with them. And one of the things I think we should get into is part of our bottom-up research. I'll talk a little bit about what we like to get out of some of these research trips. But the funny part about the story was is that we finished up our meeting with them after spending a whole day and meeting with not just senior management, but some middle management, touring their facilities, et cetera. And I asked the CFO, I said, hey, how many buy-side investors have you had out here this year? And he's like, well, you're the first one this year, but we had another guy come last year. So we all looked at each other and chuckled. But here's the second leading company in what we thought was a really exciting space, and no one was even aware of it. No one cares. And and, and there was only one side shop that covered them, and it's a smaller company that, you know, is not what I would call a bulge bracket, although a very good research firm. Yeah. It's so fascinating how the internet has kind of decimated the economics of a research department. You may have a bunch of people in the research department, but it's not a, I mean, it's a highly paid job on a relative basis, but it's not what it was. And so you may have two or three great analysts and then you might just have a group of average or learning analysts covering stuff. And so the quality of research kind of goes down and the amount of research goes down. And I would have to imagine that's a good thing for you. Yes. In a way, when you're kind of sniffing around. Absolutely. With my investors, I always talk about the blessing and the curse of investing in these businesses that are off the radar. The the blessing is that when we get it right, the flywheel effect is massive, where these companies trade at very inexpensive valuations, but still have great management teams and great opportunities. We'll invest in them when the valuations are off the radar and therefore lower. But what happens is that, you know, whether it be algorithm, or sell side shops or otherwise, people start to catch on to the growth rates. They start to discover these businesses. And when they do, you get that flywheel effect of the valuation gets a little bit higher, which allows them maybe to issue stock in a secondary, which then allows them to pick up additional sell side coverage, which then allows the story to get out even more. They may go out and through services like yourselves, market to investors that are like us, similarly minded to Barron. People will see that we own it and they'll call us and say, hey, we see you own this company. You know, why do you own it? Why do you like it? And so you, you do find that 
that the blessing is that it is fantastic when that flywheel effect takes place. And we've had companies where, you know, we've bought these companies at really low valuations and they've been 10 baggers. The curse is the fact that you create all your own research. People always ask me, you know, there's fewer, this is a statistic that a lot of people know, but there's fewer public companies today than there were in the 90s. And especially in my small cap realm, people always ask, is that a hurdle for you? And I say, you know what? The top of the funnel is never our bottleneck. The bottleneck is that processing the top of the funnel. I'll give you a great example. We invest in a company called Vesper Healthcare, which was a SPAC in the first quarter. This SPAC was buying a company called Hydrofacial. Hydrofacial, as the name suggests, is in the derm space. And what was so great about it, though, is management team we felt was an excellent management team. Brent Saunders, who's the chairman and he's the executive chairman, is formerly of Allergan. Great opportunity. They have 15,000 systems in place today. We think they can double that. But why I tell the story is that we had to create all our own research. This SPAC essentially had a SPAC presentation and zero. There's no cell site coverage. We had access to management a couple of times. But from that point forward, it took us about two months to talk to, we talked to the largest spa company in the world. We talked to a bunch of derm doctors who had it in some practices. In some cases, did not have it in their practices, and we wanted to understand why. We talked to med spas. And so we were doing all these calls and fundamental due diligence, but we had to create everything, including the model, from scratch, all we had was this one SPAC investor presentation. Well, that takes time. It took us a couple of months, but we made the investment in the first quarter. And lucky for us, that flywheel effect I described earlier actually took place in that you know we bought the stock at a little above $10, and today it's a little above $18, simply, and that's a very short period of time, you know, around a little over a quarter. And that's all just because the company became a little bit more discovered. People realized the opportunity a little better, and we just got lucky in that we were able to find this early enough and get the research done that we needed to before all that took place. Yeah, that must be the most gratifying thing because, you know, you get your position in the company, then everybody else starts to discover it. And everybody in the ecosystem kind of knows how to make money off of that company as it grows and needs money and does financing. And you're sitting back there having started that momentum. But yeah, total valuation expansion and like more people know it. And It just seems the way the research, equity research is on Wall Street today, it just really plays to your benefit if you have a team of people scouring around these companies. What what is your direct team that you work with for these funds? At Barron, we have a research staff, 17 analysts, and essentially there's sector coverage. So they cover, if I'm just going to pick a sector, so the semi-cap equipment analyst covers it across all market cap, small, medium, large. And they know that if there is a really high growth, very interesting, well-managed, small cap, semi-cap equipment company, they'll come in and pitch it to us. And I would say about two-thirds of our ideas comes out of our analyst staff. And then the other third, and I forgot to mention that I co-manage this product with uh, a longtime friend of mine, even before he started working at Barron, Randy Grossman. So Randy would captain that area of our portfolio for us. And so they'll go to Randy and say, hey, I have this great semi-cap equipment company, small cap, that's growing really quickly. Here's the reasons why I think the valuation makes sense. And you know, typically after that, we'll do all the due diligence and, and critical research, including going out and seeing these businesses and visiting their critical assets to try to understand if we believe what the analyst does. So we'll almost do the work twice, but that's kind of our process and really has worked for us in the past. If you had 10 of the analysts bringing you an idea, how many typically make it through to taking a position? 
You know, it's really subsector specific. You know, we're 50% healthcare and technology, give or take. And as a result of that, I would say that, you know, we do spend a lot of our time in those sectors. And so we know them a little bit better. So our hit rate and the analysts kind of know what we like better. Uh, we know what we like better. So our hit rate's probably on the higher side. If you were bringing a company in a subsector where we don't spend a ton of time, I'm just going to say we typically have not invested a lot in, say, materials companies. So I may have have a little bit harder time. So my hit rate would be lower in that particular subsector simply because we have found that it's been harder for us to make money in that subsector in the kind of growth materials companies than it has been in, you know, in healthcare and in tech. And, you know, one thing as a portfolio manager that you want to do is make sure you know what you do well and what you don't do well. And whatever you don't do well, don't do it and focus on where your hit rate is higher. That's a hobby. If you don't know what you're doing, it's a hobby. Every investment, large or small, is a big deal, especially for successful money managers like Barron Asset. Due diligence can take months or even years, depending on the situation. So the easier you can make the process for Barron, the more likely they'll follow your company and invest at some point. But what are investors looking for exactly? How can you streamline your approach? I asked Laird how management can make the most of their time with potential investors. I do think the good news for Barron Capital as a firm is that we do have a great reputation as being long-term investors. Ron Barron, our founder who started the business back in 1982, has held companies since the 1990s. So the good news is that because we have that reputation, companies view us more as partners than as, you know, like traders or flippers. And when we're doing the work, typically when I buy an investment, I do intend to hold it for an extended period of time. Now, as far as the type of things that we're looking for, say, in a research trip, I mean, for me, as I was kind of going back to the the framework around we have to create a lot of our own research, because of that, really, because we're starting from scratch, I don't have the sell side to rely on in many cases. you know. And so as a result of that, I think access to middle management is where I find I get the most value. And it's not because those people typically don't meet with Wall Street, so they might tell you something you shouldn't know. I mean, I don't care about that. I'm really thinking this is a software company that does 100 million of revenues. I want to know, can it get to a half a billion dollars of revenues over the next you know, five or six years? And if they can, how can they do that? What the next quarter is, is totally irrelevant because I tend to be there for the long haul. You know, for a soft, you know, I'm thinking of an ad tech company where early on we met with Trade Desk right when it came public. That was one of our best performing stocks in the fund's life. And one of the best meetings that we had, and this is when they had just come out of their quiet period, we went and had a call with their CTO. And, and my analyst, who was an excellent analyst, really spent a lot of time in understanding how they do what they do and why it's better. And it was a real, I think, reason that we were able to take a big stake in that company early on and understand that the opportunity was a lot better than, say, the rest of the world understood at that period. Although, obviously, today that's changed quite a bit. But things like that. I remember we met with Wingstop. We were the first investor to meet with Wingstop after they came public down in Dallas. And I got to meet with some of the middle management. And that got us really comfortable with the opportunity. I remember meeting with, at the time, was head of international and him explaining to us what he felt like the opportunity for international expansion was. And, And it became very clear to me that no one really understood how big an opportunity they had internationally. People were very focused on the domestic opportunity at the time. So things like that, getting access to those 
critical middle managers. It could be even someone that's managing an asset. Like, for example, going and visiting back in the day, as you know, I covered the casino and, yes. and lodging sectors. And so spent a lot of time visiting casinos and, and really sitting down and talking to managers in casinos. I found a lot more helpful than talking to the CFO of whatever that casino company was. It really is a job where you have to just be a naturally curious person, right? I mean, you just want to talk to everybody and try and piece it together, right? Exactly. And as you can tell, I always get excited when I talk to these folks. I think they they sense my excitement and enthusiasm for their business, and it makes the conversations a lot better. They, I mean, they want to talk about what they do, and I want to hear what they want to talk about. So it's a great match made in heaven, right? 100%. Do you find that some CEOs and CFOs, whoever your point of contact, is very wary of having you talk to anybody else at the firm and try and tightly control that? You know, I, I do think that sometimes they'll want to sit in on the conversation and that's totally fine. If they, and, if, and occasionally they'll say, hey, uh, we can't answer that. And that's totally fine too. The good news is we're not asking about, you know, short-term financial questions or anything like that. You know, it's really, hey, you have X number of wing stops today. How many wing stops do you think you can have in five years? And why do you think that? Questions like that, you know, you have 15,000 hydrofacials installed today, you know, where are they installed and what do you think the opportunity is over the next five years for both, you know, installations and, and sales per installation? And, you know, those are the kind of things that we're asking, which are show us the roadmap and, and where we're at in three to five years. Yeah. Hey, listen, I, Baron has always had such a great reputation in my mind with you and Cliff and Ron and everybody else that works there. There was a time in the 90s where some buy-side firms would call up and just try and bully management into getting information, which those days seem uh, long gone. But listen, you want to build something with scale and longevity. You know, it's about treating people with respect and being nice and being an advocate and a fan of the business. Again, I'm sure you've gone through these sessions and decided, hey, you know what, maybe the stock's run away. I'm not going to buy it, but it's on our radar screen. We love the business. We love the people. We know they're going to do a good job and we just, you know, may not want to buy it right now. Is that a fair comment? Absolutely. We call it our shadow list of ideas. And we essentially maintain a shadow list for all the subsectors as best we can. And uh, I'll give you the best example of that, which was Florin Decor. Florin Decor had been a name on my shadow list for many years after it came public, but I always felt like the valuation wasn't approachable, at least for me. And back in December 2018 and January 2019, if you remember that period, the, the market had a downdraft and combined with that, interest rates were going higher. So housing was as a subsector was out of favor. I can't remember the exact prices, but maybe it went from 60 to mid-20s. And we started buying it very early in January of 2019, kind of in that mid to upper 20s range. And as you know, today, it's, it's a little under 100. And so obviously, great investment over not a long period of time. We're only talking, you know, two and a half years ago, right? A great return simply because we were patient and we waited, but we monitored and were able to capitalize when there was a market dislocation. As a company, you want to put your best foot forward when things go sideways or if the business is struggling temporarily. It may not feel like the time to tell your story, but that's exactly when you should be building relationships with potential investors. Communicating why the business might be having a setback and what the recovery plan is, is critical. Being straightforward with accurate information and timely communication is key to building credibility and valuation. I asked Laird what he wants to hear from companies that might have hit a rough patch. 
you know, I think when things are going poorly, that's the time to be more transparent. And we invest in early stage companies. As a result of that, a lot of our companies stumble along the way. That's okay. You just want to help us understand what happened. Picking up software, you know, we see go-to-market problems in software all the time. It could be anything from, you know, we had higher than expected Salesforce attrition. We had a new version come out and people postponed purchases as a result of that. And our sales cycle got long. I've heard it all. And none of those things will bother me. And in fact, a lot of times they create opportunities for investors like us to get involved. So don't, obviously companies set goals and we can have the question. This is one that I'd like to ask you. I I know this is your podcast, but it's the proverbial two companies are growing 20%. One of them guides to 17% and grows 20%. One of them guides to 20% and grows 20%. Which one trades at the higher multiple? I want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, no, I think setting expectations is everything. And if a stock is trading at a nosebleed multiple, they have to be very careful about how they talk about the future because one slip up can jeopardize that multiple. I always think when a company is kind of washed out a little bit and you know all the bad news is out and nobody cares, it's there's so much freedom in that because you can say anything. You know, As long as you're like, we'll have these behind the scenes conversations and they'll say, yeah, you know, our guidance this year could be a dollar. I'm making that up. And I'll say, okay, well, how about 80 cents to a dollar? Because it actually doesn't matter if it's 80 or 90 or a dollar based on the multiple you're at right now. We want to be in a position of delivering on what we say and then some potentially, or, or at least give you a cushion in case something goes sideways, you still hit the lower end of your range or something. So there's a real art to the stock market, as you know. And listen, the reality is, a great operator never grew up in an investment bank and may not know the creativity needed or the way you talk about things that help you fit in. So that's good for us. And and I think it's good for you guys if they're people who really know what they're doing behind the scenes, guiding companies to kind of do and say the right things and set expectations so that they're set up to succeed versus fail. Because they're, as you point out, there's a lot of people along the way who would encourage companies to be way more aggressive with their estimates and their numbers. And that usually just doesn't end the right way, you know? Absolutely. Especially, you know, one one thing I would point out is that when things go wrong and you have a good balance sheet, you will always be able to kind of work your way through it if you, if all those other factors, competitive positioning, management, et cetera, et cetera, are in place. The bad news is great companies with bad balance sheets can actually have really bad things happen. You know, maybe uh, a small stumble becomes a big stumble and can make things a lot worse. I'm always a proponent, especially for earlier stage companies to have bulletproof balance sheets. Yeah. Raise money when you can. Don't get greedy. Absolutely. Don't worry about the the small amount of dilution because ultimately, if you're going to get to where you're going, you're still going to make you yourselves, meaning the management and your investors, a lot of money. Couldn't agree more. So switching gears a little bit, pulling out of COVID and everything with the world opening up, hopefully knock on wood, what are you seeing out there that's intriguing to you? Not necessarily like names of companies, but if you wanted to do that, that's fine. But just what is the reopening going to be like and what kind of opportunities are you seeing within it that seem like really cool or one of a kind kinds of opportunities very often? What What's kind of resonating with you as you look out the next couple of years? 
Sure. I mean, you know, there's some obvious ones and some not so obvious ones. And the other thing is that some of them already incorporate a recovery as far as the stock price is concerned, where that wasn't the case, say, last summer. And some of them don't. But I think one of the biggest things for us is if you think about leisure travel over the next 18 months, the level of pent up demand in leisure travel is going to be unlike anything we've seen probably since after World War II. I don't know about you and your family, but I know me and my family after not traveling for quite a long time. We're going somewhere. Exactly. We're going to take that budget that we had uh, put into our house over the last 18 months because we were here a lot and now put that into leisure travel. And so I think one of our largest purchases in the first quarter, and, and just so everyone knows, we haven't disclosed our second quarter purchases yet, so I can't talk about those. But one of our largest in the first quarter was TripAdvisor, and that certainly is a play on this recovery in leisure travel. And I think as a theme, we're very bullish and you can go through our portfolio. You know, One of the things that we say at our Baron, Big Baron conference, which have you been to our conference ever? I have once. Okay. I think like Elton John played. Is that the conference you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the one where I'm talking about. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, at the Baron Conference, we have a little tagline, you've never heard of our companies, but you will. And the reason I mention that is just because if you look at our holdings, which are all on our website, if anyone cares to see, most of the companies, unless you shopped at the, the retailer or, or ate at the restaurant, you've never heard of any of our businesses. And that's just the way we like it. So leisure travel, we think is going to be very strong. The other thing I was going to mention is that there's areas where you wouldn't have expected it that we also think we're going to see a nice ramp up. And a good example of this is in the, what I'll call elective healthcare. We have a, a company called Sientra that plays in that space. That's an area that, you know, had pulled back quite a bit because people were afraid to go to hospitals, et cetera. So we have a lot of investments in that healthcare sector where these elective procedures we think are going to come back very strongly. And so those companies, which many of them had underperformed even up until recently, although it has gotten a little better of late, we think we still have big opportunities to make money. And so those are just give you a sense of a couple of themes from a recovery standpoint that we're thinking about. I think it's fascinating, you know, and when you're kind of circling back with all your coworkers there and just talking about the world and what's happening, not only stuff like that that you mentioned, but kind of the work from anywhere, you know, and property values in Park City and different places where, you know, it's just going to be very interesting to see how things shake out in the next year regarding like where people are going to be, where they're going to work and does that work? And I don't know, change is kind of, there's always opportunity in change. And it sounds like you guys are all over it in the funds. Number one, number two, you know, with your level of experience at this point, you've almost seen it all, I would imagine. (laughs) You know, I would have said that. And then of course, you know, COVID hits and then you go, "Ah, maybe I haven't seen it all. Like most endeavors that are worthwhile, relationships are at the heart of any investment. It needs to be a win-win to perpetuate success. But whoever your potential investors are, they'll wanna know that your balance sheet's in order, that you have a plan to grow, your P&L, and what you'll do to navigate the challenges that every public company faces. Most importantly, investors want timely and accurate information and a conservative approach to talking about the future. I'd like to thank Laird Beeger of Barron Capital Group for joining us. We're lucky to get some of his time and some of his valuable advice. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. We'll see you next time back in the arena. <laughs>